Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Judge Business Debate. My name is Michael Kitson. I'm an economist here at Judge Business School in Cambridge. In this series, specialists from the Cambridge Judge Business School and the wider Cambridge community discuss and debate topical issues of business and management. In today's session, we are focusing on healthcare. One key benefit of economic growth is that people are living longer, but this demographic change is increasing pressures on healthcare systems throughout the world. There is the issue of funding, should the consumer pay directly for healthcare at the point of use or through the insurance market, or should healthcare be publicly funded through the tax system? How should healthcare operations be organised, and what are the role of market mechanisms? And how do we ensure continuous flow of innovations in the pharmaceutical industry to provide the drugs to improve health and the quality of life? To discuss these and other issues, I've got four distinguished guests from the Cambridge Judge Business School. Dr. Kamal Munir is Reader in Strategy and Policy. Dr. Aris Oropoulos is University Lecturer in Operations Management and Director of the MPhil in Strategy, Marketing and Operations. And Professor Stefan Schultes is Dennis Gillings, Professor of Health Management and Director of the Centre for Health Leadership and Enterprise. And finally, but not least, Professor Paul Tracy, Professor of Innovation and Organisation and Co-Director of the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. So welcome to my four guests here today. Perhaps we could kick off with many of the challenges facing healthcare systems around the world and can the private sector and the market mechanism do more to improve the efficiency of healthcare provision? Michael, Kamal, yeah, please. Michael, I think uh, there are two things uh, to be said here. Um, the private sector generally benefits the consumer because of the whole dynamic of competition. So the first question is, do, we, do you want to introduce competition uh, into the health sector? which would basically mean that a lot of for-profit organizations competing essentially for profit right, and pushing boundaries and you know, sort of uh, these kind of things come into that. So that is the first question that needs to be answered there. The second one is that you know, we cannot simply look to the private sector as if they have some sort of a magic wand and they will come and fix it because there are good managers and bad managers in the private sector as well. Not all firms do very well. And similarly, there are well-run hospitals within the NHS uh, or the public sector, and there are you know, not so well-run hospitals within that. So I don't think we can look towards the private sector uh, to come and fix uh, the problem. Stefan. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And we, had, we had experiences uh, locally of the private sector coming in trying to sort out hospitals, and that didn't go so well. And Kamar has been working with Hinchinbrook Hospital on a, on a case to try and understand how or why that didn't work out. Um, there are very few examples where private intervention has actually really benefited hospitals that I can think of. And so I, I think what we're now seeing is that the NHS as a whole is also moving away from, from, the, from the paradigm that the, you know, competition was sorted out. Competition can be very powerful, but in healthcare, it probably has a relatively small place. It does have a place, but a relatively small place. I would say it can work where you have services that are relatively straightforward, that have clearly defined outcomes that are very easily measurable, and therefore we, we do know that the externalities that healthcare abounds with are actually controlled, and it isn't that the private sector increases things or does things that have externalities somewhere else in the system that we cannot cope with. Paul? Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with Stefan. I think that it may have a place, but if it does so, that is very probably at the margins. And I think one thing 
that people often forget, especially when you're talking about publicly funded health systems like the NHS, is that if you're bringing in ideas and structures and practices from the private sector um, and trying to infuse them into this, um, this set of organisations that have been publicly owned for a very long time, you're introducing a great deal of complexity there. Um, and when you start to introduce complexity, that can be very expensive and actually inefficient. So you introduce these market ideas because you want to make uh, the NHS, you want to make um, healthcare organisations more efficient. But what happens is because the sets of ideas that people are dealing with are not necessarily compatible, they end up dealing with a whole set of tensions that would not otherwise have emerged. Now, of course, that is not unique to healthcare. You see it in lots of other um, parts of the public sector. You might think, for example, um, of the railways, for instance, which is a very different set of organisations but experienced a similar set of problems when you introduce ideas from the private sector which are very different and structures and practices were very different from the, 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 the established incumbent practices, if you like. So I think there's a set of costs, potentially, that um, health systems have to bear if they're mixing across systems in this way. Can you give us an example of those sort of tensions? Well, I mean, I could tell you about a study uh, that I was involved in uh, in an Italian hospital. I mean, this was one of the first uh, public-private partnerships in, in, in Italy um, in, the, in the early 2000s. And what was interesting about that was that uh, the, the private partner, the private sector, if you like, was, a, a relatively, was, was the junior partner. So the hospital uh, was turned into a, a, a private company with the government or the state owning 70% of the shares and the private investors owning 30% of the shares. It was very clear that in the early days, the, 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 the knowledge and the ideas from the private sector were there very much to support what was happening, very much to support clinical outcomes, healthcare professionals. And actually in the early days, it seemed to work quite well. It did help to make the hospital more efficient. There was some evidence that the healthcare outcomes improved. And, but as that happened, what was really interesting about that was that the uh, private managers, if you like, or the representatives of the investors started to become more confident and to push their ideas more fully about um, you know, how healthcare should be organised. So it started to influence clinical decision making. And when that happened, that's when the tensions really emerged. So it's kind of like, you know, the analogy we, we use is it's kind of like a boiling frog almost. It's a very, very small scale uh, changes which weren't necessarily perceptible that gradually ramp up and then at some point the whole the whole thing the whole thing explodes when the when the the sort of incompatibility between the ideas being promoted uh, become apparent to the physicians and when the you know the healthcare outcomes start to start to suffer Paul the the case you mentioned in in Italy has a lot of parallels with the uh, the hospital that Stefan just mentioned Hinchinbrook hospital which is about 15 20 miles from here and that was the first um, NHS hospital to be given into private management so the private uh, firm came in and took over charge. And just as you said, you know, in the initial days, uh, there were uh, efficiency benefits and so on. But a couple of years into the whole thing, they threw in the towel and they basically said, we can't do it. And a couple of, you know, sort of, you know, things that uh, come out very clearly from that is that you cannot expect hospital, you know, sort of um, uh, to be the level at which you will get all these efficiency benefits. I mean, efficiency benefits have to be generated at a central level. You cannot pit hospital against, you know, another hospital. That hospital A is saving this much money. Why aren't you saving this? And that is fundamentally unsustainable, that kind of uh, thing, which is, which is how a lot of firms in the private sector also do it, but they don't become cost leaders in their industry. 
because what they do is, you know, they will ask banks trying to cut costs, will ask bank managers, okay, you guys start cutting costs. NHS will similarly start asking hospitals, you guys start cutting costs. But if you look at the cost leaders in, in the private sector who we teach, you know, sort of as case studies and so on and so forth, they generate these efficiencies at a central level and then pass those on to the units. And um, so otherwise, I don't think uh, this, is, this is going to work. Um, hospitals and the various assets that the NHS has, they may have to be reconfigured in, uh, in interesting and creative ways, but you can't just leave it to the hospitals to save the NHS. But how are we going to do it? So something needs to be done. I mean, I've, I've been always gobsmacked by the stubbornness of the organization of healthcare. Uh, in an industry that is dominated by incredible innovation. Are you talking across the world or the NHS I'm, I'm talking across the world. Yeah. Um, the NHS is just an example of it. But if you look at the technology, I mean, you know, laparoscopic surgery, um, the latest cancer drug, whatever you name it, unbelievable progress. Life expectancy increases by about three months every year. Every single year and has been doing so over 150 years now through various innovations. When we look at how we, how we organize and how we deliver healthcare, it's pretty much the same as 50 years ago. It's dominated by doctors. It's run by doctors at the basic level. The dominating organizations are hospitals everywhere in the world. Why is that? Why are these hospitals so strong? Is that something we need to change? I would argue, that's the case. The we are, so we are locking everything into hospitals at the moment. We're sat in an old hospital is, as well. There is, very little, there is very little incentive, and even if people are good winning, it's very hard to break through the complexities of disintegrating things and disseminating it away from the hospital so that these hugely complicated organizations become manageable again. I think that's one of, and, and I, I completely agree with my colleagues, the private sector is not going to do this, but it's got to be done somehow if we want to make real progress. What would, this, what would this reconfigured healthcare system look like if we're not having hospitals and it's not dominated by doctors? I'm not saying we're not having hospitals. I'm oh, just okay, saying well, we're, well, we're slimming down hospitals to their focus. So what is a hospital there for? A hospital is there for to look after serious emergency cases, life and limb threatening conditions, it is therefore to have, you know, to look after patients who might need intensive care. It is therefore patients who need general anesthetics. It is therefore who need, for patients who need difficult surgeries. That may be 30 to 40% of the activity that goes on in a hospital these days. Everything else is somehow could be delivered elsewhere if only there was a landing place for it. And there was a willingness by the by the doctors and by the professions to actually think outside the box and delivering it elsewhere. I mean, hospitals are, from a transaction, you're an economist, Michael, from a transactions cost perspective, for the doctors and the patients, hospitals are great, right? They, are, they have very low transaction costs. I, you know, I, I have a problem if I have a, as a patient, I have a problem of finding the right doctor. I don't have that problem, I just have to go to the hospital. As a doctor, I have a problem of recruiting patients. I don't have that problem because the patients come to the hospital. Within the hospital, I can share MRI scanners and other things with other colleagues that would never be economical if I was doing it outside the hospital. So from an, from, an, from an economic perspective, there is a good argument for the hospital, but it is extremely expensive. 
the, the transaction cost machine that have to, has the low transaction cost for patients and hospitals is going to be paid for by society, and it's very expensive to do it. The overhead costs in, in some, in, I've, I've recently read a paper, US paper, that said 46% of US hospital costs are overhead costs. They are huge, and lots of services can be provided. In, just just on that, how, how much of that is due to the fact that they're, they're primarily private sector in the US as opposed to... That's a, that's a misconception. So the, the US system is not a private system at all, I would argue. Uh, more than half of its funding comes from Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, many of the hospitals are not private. They are, uh, many of the hospitals are, in fact, non-profit. So it's a very complex system. I mean, there's a perception out, out there that the U.S. is a private system, but they spend a huge amount of money on healthcare, 18%. If you say half of it is 9% uh, of GDP is, uh, is actually spent by the government, we are basically, they spent the same amount percentage GDP wise as the as the UK does so it isn't it isn't a private system Harris uh, could it be Stefan because of the highly regulatory aspect and the risk aversion that comes with the stakeholders that are involved because I see I fully see your point about the hospital inefficiencies uh, and perhaps some of this decision making could be moved to the patient but one aspect is uh, especially with all this discussion about digital and the data aspect, if patients own more of the data and who should be making decisions about this and if some of this burden could be moved uh, away from the healthcare professionals and uh, obviously the answer it, it depends but it is a debate going on on the healthcare space uh, this aspect of dark, da dark data data meaning that it's somewhere out there but we don't have access to them necessarily and uh, the cost could go down if everybody could share those data, including the multiple stakeholders of the healthcare ecosystem, from doctors to pharma. That is changing rapidly. I've just had a recent simple episode, uh, hospital episode, and they suggested that I register for what they call my chart, which gives me access to my data on my mobile phone with a fingerprint recognition. I've got it here. You want to see, you want to see the hospital, the... the, the, the Consultant letter, it's, it's all here, right? I could just read it all. I mean, this is, this is only the start of it. Wait another two or three years, we all have this. We walk around with our data, that's absolutely unstoppable. So it's a good point, that will, that will change a lot. When digital comes in, digital can, I mean, Kamal has a lot of experience in terms of what digital innovation can do, but it does, it does change everything because copies of information come at zero cost and they can be obtained everywhere. So that changes power structures. The moment the information is with a, with a doctor, they are the powerful player. If the information is with me as a patient, the power flows to me, and I can choose my doctors much more easily than I could before. It will change the work patterns. Doctors now spend over 50% of their time in front of screens rather than with patients. That I, I, I teach doctors sort of regular do, uh, leadership course to doctors. I ask them every year what percentage of their, of their time they spend in front of screens, and increases every year. So there's an amount, there's a, there's a change going on that is definitely worth the, just at the, at the cusp of it that's, that's coming. That's assuming we can all process the information that we, that's made available to us, that we understand what it means. Yep. I, I, can, I can understand my blood pressure readings, uh, my, my, my blood counts. Yep. The, I struggle to the, know whether The software will help you. Software will tell you it's in the green range, it's in the, not in the green range or whatever it might be, what you should eat, what you should exercise. 
I, I think you raise an important point, Michael, because what I think technology, digital technology all, often does, it sometimes can exacerbate health inequalities, right? So people who have, can afford, and I see it's a very nice iPhone you've got there, Stefan, people can afford that, <laughs> business school professors, it's, it's great. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if you can't afford that technology or, you know, perhaps you don't, you're not comfortable or f using apps or whatever, then for these people, they, they, they're excluded. And so there's a whole set of issues around inequality as we, as we transition to this, this, this new set of digital technologies that I think we, we need to be mindful of, I think. I think that's right, because, um, you know, I mean, so you, what we don't want is to recreate the digital divide within the NHS. And already, um, uh, or, you know, the UK healthcare system, and, and, uh, and already they're under pressure because they have to please both the very rich and uh, the very poor with the same services. And that is, that is never an easy thing to do. And that sort of takes us back to the reconfiguration that, uh, Michael, you, uh, you brought up. So, for example, not every hospital might need to have A&E. Uh, we might need to have some specialist centers sort of in, in the entire network to take load off some hospitals, shift off. But that is, that is where it basically you know, becomes obvious to us that it's not just a managerial or an organizational problem, it's also a political problem. And the political problem being that, you know, I mean, the MP, how will the MP react if you are trying to close down A&E in a hospital in her uh, constituency? And that is where I think the government should be, should be focusing. And the other place where the government should be focusing is public health to take the load off. Uh, you know the 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 hospital system. I think that's a very very important point. We we haven't talked really yet about preventative medicine, but of course, ultimately that's going to be um, where the really significant cost savings are going to come. And perhaps actually that is where technology can really uh, help in many ways. But I, I did see that 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 book uh, by Eric Topol, the patient the patient will see you now, did you, which I think is really interesting. It gets at some of these these issues that uh, Stefan was, was, was talking about. And you, know, you could see this as a kind of utopia where, you know, as, as patients were taking control, we're co-creating with our doctor our own healthcare solutions, but I kind of view that to something of a, with a, with a fear of dread. I, I wouldn't just want to go to my doctor and I just want him to uh, diagnose me and recommend what treatment I'm going to get. I don't, want, I don't necessarily want to have, have the pressure of those decisions upon myself, if you like. That, that makes me nervous. Uh, but I think one fundamental issue is that if we all argue like that, nothing will happen. So the, there's clearly, we have to be mindful of different access routes to healthcare, but we have to offer that choice. At the moment, that's not a choice. So I might feel absolutely comfortable doing this, and you might be very uncomfortable doing it. We should have both, we should have access routes to allow us to do this, and over time, the patients will decide what they want, and we might have two or three things. We don't want to, want to make it too complicated, but we have, might have segments of particular types of patients that use the health system in different ways, and we have to allow that to happen. I mean, at the moment, there's, there's, there's still the, the idea in, 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 in people's minds that, oh, um, this will lead to, this technology will lead to, to health inequality, and therefore we shouldn't do it. I think that's not the right. No, I think I think we, there is no way we can prevent that from happening because this, the 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 generation that is coming in now um, views the whole thing completely differently. So you know, I mean, so for my generation, for example, it may still be true that I like human contact. I want a doctor to come in and talk to me, and you know, a nurse to come and sort of ask, you know, take my blood pressure and so on and so forth. For my son's generation, human contact is seen as intrusive. 
they'd rather sort of, you know, engage with each other through devices. And they're perfectly comfortable doing that. Harris. And actually last year was, uh, 2018 was a landmark year in, in the sense that it was the first time that the FDA approved the first fully autonomous AI diagnostic device that doesn't need any intervention for the doctors. The patient can just sort of diagnose uh, himself or herself for diabetic uh, retinopathy. And a lot of patients felt much more comfortable just using the device without having to uh, interact with any medical professional. I think that's right. I mean, AI is going to take things to a whole different uh, level again. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Well, I'm not so sure that, that might happen, but it will take time. Um, it's a big hype. I don't think we've reached the hype curve yet on AI. There's a lot of hype going on. Eventually, there'll be some good things about you know, that come out of AI, but it'll take time, and it take, in particular, it will take time to integrate. So an interesting example is is the doctor on the phone. There's a company called Babylon in uh, in the UK um, that offers GP services, basic GP services on the phone. Splint, in fact, our our, our um, Secretary of State for Health is is a, is a member of Babylon. So he's he's he's, uh, he's using the service. Great idea in, in principle, right? We're all busy people. We might have a you know a, a symptom of some sort. We want to have advice. Why not do it on the phone? It it'll happen. So, but. How do you make this work, taking into account the potential negative consequences on funding, for example? I'll give you another example. I work with a primary care practice, granted medical practice here in Cambridge. Um, and we are regularly, we're seeing patients who come to us and want our service, and we tell them that they have now deregistered from our practice because they have registered with Babylon. And as a direct consequence, they are no longer our patients. We don't receive any funding for them. We cannot provide service for them. So these are consequences that we all have to be cognizant about. And it takes, it takes a lot of time to integrate something as obviously beneficial and sensible as a Babylon doctor on the phone type service into a wider system so that it makes sense for everyone. If we're thinking about the, we've been discussing technology and AI and suggesting how it will deliver, provide new service, well, reorientate the delivery of services, increase efficiency and so on. What about drug discovery at the basic level? We, you know, drug discovery is becoming more difficult. It's often becoming more costly and actually taking longer in many cases. I mean, Aris, you've, you've looked a lot into drug discovery. So that's another area where there's a lot of hype and there's a new conference about AI and pharma and drug discovery pretty much every week or every month. Um, I'm going to quote here a recent... Uh, interview from the, the CEO of Novartis that um, he discussed how we haven't seen this happening yet. There is definitely a lot of potential, uh, but we, and there are many aspects that AI has revolutionized the drug development process, but in terms of discovering new drugs, uh, there's simply nothing that has entered the clinical trials as a result of an AI software. Um, that being said, uh, we do have a local success story, a company called Helix here in Cambridge, that they do use machine learning and AI to identify potential uh, drug discovery targets. Now, the challenge there is that if we know anything from the history of drug development is that 
until you actually validate this in humans, in actual clinical trials, you simply don't know. So it is possible that we might get great recommendations from a software and an algorithm, but there is simply no substitute for doing the clinical trials and doing them in large scales. And that's a major driver of the cost. So until it's not clear how we're going to sort of overcome that barrier. Is drug discovery coming, becoming more difficult? That's a good question. It is becoming more expensive for sure. Uh, and kind of connects to our previous discussion about who can afford or not. Um, the latest example being breakthrough therapies uh, using gene therapy that cost well over a million dollars. It's a one-off treatment, but for most patients finding one million, it is uh, prohibitively ex expensive. I mean, getting back to, just linking this back to our earlier discussion about healthcare becoming more consumer-driven, um, in terms of the pharmaceutical industry, um, I take a very various um, concoction of drugs. I don't choose those drugs. Um, the, the doctor chooses the drugs that I take and changes the dosage every now and again. I have no not notion of actually what I'm consuming apart from what it's supposed to solve. I mean, th that gives a, it's a very unusual market really where the consumer has perhaps little information about what they're actually consuming and they don't make the decision about what they consume. It's really the doctor. Is that really sort of part of the driver of this industry? So that's another interesting point because, uh, and at the moment it's still a barrier for AI because doctors traditionally they want to understand what's happening. And at the moment the AI is still operating in a very non-transparent way. We get an answer, but we can't really see why the software make that recommendation. And that could easily make, at least at the moment, our doctors uncomfortable to adopt perhaps some of those technologies and uh, making a recommendation to us as patients if they still don't understand why uh, this uh, recommendation is being made. Cool. I think, Mike, so, uh, would you rather have more of a say in the drugs you, you were taking? Or, or I mean, is that something that you as a patient would feel more comfortable in? Or? I would feel more comfortable if I knew more information about the drugs I were taking, the inter possible interactions and the alternatives, because often there's an alternative um, uh, and your doctor doesn't have the time or doesn't know or why, why do you why I, I, I don't know I mean I, 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 when you visit a doctor it's, it's, it's a peculiar power relationship mm. and it's sometimes very difficult I don't like going to the doctor and I prefer mm. to be in and out as quickly as possible rather than interrogate them about what are there alternatives available can I take two drugs rather than one and take a smaller dose of one rather than another what the possible interactions are about the drugs and I, I I'm not um, one for engaging in a long debate and conversation about these things. But so only afterwards you realise sometimes that there are alternatives available to you. And I suppose I think it's especially people of our generation, we tend to be very trusting and respectful. Very doctor, deferential to doctors. Very deferential. Yeah, yeah. Doctor says we just do it. And, yeah. um, you know, maybe going back to Stefan's point, maybe that's not such a good thing, although um, it's certainly the way that I interact with my own doctor, I have to say. You're differential? Uh, or you're, you're very differential, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but there are lots of products and services where we don't really, you know, we, we leave it to the experts. So you don't try to have a say in which airplane you're going to fly, for example, right? I mean, there are some experts somewhere out there. We have never met them, but they have decided this is the best airplane, you know, and, and so on. So lots of lots of such cases, right? I mean, but, we but we, in really that case, we're almost certainly going to be flowing, flying in a, either a Boeing or an Airbus in ninety-five percent of until the Chinese come in. Until the Chinese, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's um, 
But it is a, it is a peculiar industry where you, it is a, one of the biggest sectors of the, of the world economy, and, but often the consumers don't know exactly what they're consuming and, and don't, don't control what they're consuming. It's the doctors who make the decision or the physicians or, 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 the, or the medical professionals. And why do they do it? So why is it X and not Y? Yeah. And so that one big aspect, for example, of healthcare is over-treatment. If you don't have the incentives right, I mean, That's you're right. an economist, you know that. If you don't have the incentives right, if, you know, all hell breaks loose. If you look at hip and knee replacement rates across Europe, um, it's much higher in Germany than, than anywhere else. Why? Because the orthopedic surgeons are private. They have their own private practice rather than uh, work in a hospital. Some work in a hospital, obviously, but there's a mix of things. And that creates, you know, if, you, if you're a borderline patient and if, uh, you know, if it goes into my own wallet, whether or not I operate on you, I might operate on you. And, and that comes back to where we started in a sense. When you introduce markets into healthcare, then you have a set of incentives which are not necessarily uh, skewed towards the patient or the system as a whole. And that's where it becomes problematic, I think. That's right. And what Stefan is saying then, you know, is borne out by empirical evidence from countries where there is a burgeoning private uh, healthcare sector, whether it's uh, in the Middle East or in China or, uh, or in India, where once a patient goes in, you know, the probability that they're going to have to do all these different tests, which may not entirely be necessary and might even come out with a stent in their, you know, sort of heart and so on. Yeah is a lot higher because the incentives are very different. But, I mean, if we can't solve it with, I'm still coming back to that question, we can't solve it with competition, how are we going to make this? So we have, a, we have an aging population, everybody knows that. We have lower fertility rates than we used to. We have a reduction of the productive workforce. Uh, the, the workforce is therefore under stress. We have lots of mental health issues. We have that reduces the productivity further, means we get less and less taxes, less and less people have to pay health care for more and more people. We have to, somehow, we have to square the circle, guys. How do we square that circle then? I mean, my simple answer would be you increase taxes, tax rates. You have to pay, exactly, this is the, we talked about the market and mm. supply side and efficiency, but it's a demand side. The simple argument is that people, as you said, people are living longer and you say to people, what do you want? Do you want, do you want a new iPhone or do you want one better year quality of life? Well, we go for the quality of life, I'd hope, mm. in most cases. Well, certainly we would at our age. Uh, and that's that's very expensive. Healthcare for elderly people uh, is often very expensive. Well, so, we, we, so it's going it's to be paid somehow, either through the market or through, through the tax system or some combination. This interesting thing with healthcare is we're, we're we're always both. We're taxpayers and patients. And so when we're thinking as taxpayers, we have one answer. When we're thinking of patients, we have we have a different answer, and that's that's a challenge. Um, when it comes to taxes, I would argue earmark the taxes. Oh, hypothecation. Uh, make sure that it is that it is healthcare taxes that any increase goes into healthcare and nowhere else because that gives it a lot more. I think there's people would be more prepared to entertain tax increases if it was clearly, you know, a, a ring fenced tax for the NHS. That would that would make sense, I suppose. If it's just generic tax increases, who knows where that lands. I mean, I have to say I'm very sympathetic to the, the point that you that you made, Michael, about, you know, I think many people are in denial about um, uh, the cost of health care, the increasing cost of health care. If you look at the evidence on the NHS, 
it's actually a very efficient healthcare system in comparison yes. to others. Um, so the idea of this is, is kind of a bloated bureaucracy that we just need to sort it out through, I don't know, business ideas or whatever, I think is I think doesn't stand scrutiny necessarily. Um, and so if, if, if we were to agree that, 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 certainly in the UK context, that the NHS is not particularly inefficient, in fact, it's actually quite efficient, if you think about it like that, then you start to say, well, what are the alternative options? It's either to get private capital in, and that takes us down a whole different uh, path that I would argue we really don't want to go, or we all accept we have to pay more money, and that could be us as individuals paying more money, it could be multinational corporations actually paying their fair share of tax, uh, it could be uh, companies that are selling tobacco and alcohol and things full of sugar and fat that are causing a lot of health problems. But I don't know what the balance of those things would be, but at the end of the day, um, if we're going to meet these rising costs, we have no option but to, but, but, but to pay for it. But yes, I mean, so uh, there, are, there are a couple of ways, right, in which you can begin to tackle these costs. I mean, we already mentioned public health which is preventative uh, sort of paradigm. I don't think you know nearly enough is being done uh, on that front uh, to take this load off the NHS. The second, the second way in, to tackle costs and the way a lot of private sector, large private sector firms is to use their size, right? which means that rather than having lots of small independent hospital, it makes sense to have one large sort of you know group which manages uh, hospital because their purchasing power vis-a-vis -vis these powerful pharmaceutical companies, health instrumentation devices, uh, manufacturers is going to be much larger, right? And would you rather have you know sort of that large uh, organization in the public sector or in the private sector? I agree. I agree with you. If we um, if we just look forward, and I just what what one change would you? recommend would have the biggest impact on improving healthcare over the next, say, 10 to 15 years. These things take a long time. I think we've picked that up from the conversation, that things take a long change. What's, what's one, I, the I, one, the one main priority to improve mm. particularly healthcare, perhaps particularly healthcare in, in, in the UK? I would argue that, I would say that take it out of the political sphere and give people time to change. The notion that you can change over two years, do something really significant, have a transformation over two or three years is ridiculous. All the examples where good transformation have ha has happened across the NHS or internationally are long-term, 10-year-plus projects where willing people have come together and have really thought about what they want to have in 10 years and then worked on it slowly um, and, and got there. Um, and they were uninterrupted by constant, or relatively uninterrupted, by constant political interference. I think we'll have to somehow make sure that healthcare gets rid of the political sphere. I, I mean, I think Stefan makes a really great point there. I think that political interference is, um, has been highly uh, problematic and, and providing some kind of buffer uh, for doing that. I know that you were discussing earlier that some parts of the NHS in the UK are better than others at doing that, but I, I think that I completely agree that uh, political interference is, is hugely problematic. But more broadly, just going back to our previous point, Michael, I think this idea that the acceptance that actually significantly more resource is needed um, and to get political support for that is one of the most important things that's, that needs to happen. That's a particular challenge when there seems to be a, a common argument that taxes cannot go up. That's uh, right. <laughs> 
you know, we can't really, well, we, so we increase taxes by, by, you know, indirectly rather than by actually saying we're going to increase taxes for this purpose. We do it indirectly. Yeah, I think, um, well, I mean, again, I'd like to emphasize the whole preventative paradigm uh, more to take load off the NHS because a lot of the problems that are happening in healthcare is because of the load that is uh, currently being placed on that particular sector. And um, so I think, I mean, we also need to make, to, to start viewing the whole thing as a holistic uh, problem. And um, the food chain, lifestyle, work-life balance, um, a number of the nature of work is changing uh, itself, which is, I think, uh, in a few years, by 2030, 40% of the UK is uh, going to have musculoskeletal uh, problems. It's probably going to happen sooner uh, than that. And, uh, so, why, is, why is that happening? What's the cause of that? Uh, so sedentary uh, lifestyle, ah, right, not okay, enough yeah. movement, and, uh, and, and so on. And uh, so this is, I think, uh, we really need to pay attention uh, to that. Aris? Yep. Um, I would say that digital technology will, is bound to play a role in reducing the cost and the inefficiencies. But uh, as we were saying before, that's not going to happen overnight or some other miraculous way. It will take time. Uh, but it is something, at least as far as I know, that this aspect has not been um, very dominant in the biopharmaceutical sector. Of course, there's always biotechnology. It's, they always operate on the cutting edge of the technology, but not necessarily the digital technology, so software, computer science. This has dramatically changed in the past five years with significant investments in what we call uh, digital. Uh, so this will play out at some point. We don't know, of course, exactly when and how, but there is a change happening. We are at the tipping point of this, including, of course, changing, uh, like the example that Stefan mentioned before, apps that might change the behavior of us as a patient and the way we make our uh, behavioral decision and lifestyle decisions, which do have a huge impact on uh, the cost of healthcare. Good. Well, thank you for that discussion. I mean, we are running out of time, and, and my, my, my watch is telling me I have to stand up now to, uh, to improve my health care. So uh, <laughs> we're, we're going we're to have, have to wrap up now. I know people have got to, got to get to the lecture theatre. So um, thank you very much for our guests today, uh, Dr. Kamal Munir, uh, Dr. Aris Oropoulos, and Professor Stefan Schultes, and Professor Paul Tracy. Thank you very much for joining us, and I hope you can all join us again next time. Thank you. Thank you.